All right. You want to go ahead and read the thing? All right. The Qing Dynasty was founded in 1636. At its height, it was the largest imperial dynasty in Chinese history, the fourth largest empire ever, and the most populous country in the world. But all things must end, and when the Qing Dynasty finally fell, it took the very idea of a Chinese imperial monarchy with it. It weathered the shrinking of the world as improved traveling technologies and techniques made intercontinental travel and trade a simpler thing. Industrial revolutions swept through the world and humanity stepped forward, whether tradition wished it or not. After nearly 300 years of rule, a series of revolutions and constant foreign encroachment led to the end of the dynasty. Its emperor was six years old. Over the course of his lifetime, the child emperor would grow up to see his country invaded repeatedly, revolutions followed by counter-revolutions, and the final end of the imperial Chinese way of life. His is a story of a child given unlimited power, a man in turns longing to return to the throne and desperate to leave it behind, a puppet king in a puppet state, and a figure of some sympathy in a country completely transformed around him. Like all people, he was complex, capable of great tyranny and simple kindness, cruel to the people closest to him and humble in his later life to complete strangers. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the life of Puyi, the last emperor of China. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, your host for this episode. And I'm his sister, Ella, your co-host. So again, we have to talk about sources. Yes. Uh, the sources for this episode <laughs> are in conflict and must be treated with some objective skepticism as... Puyi's early life was largely documented by a man with a vested interest in portraying him in a certain way in the book Twilight in the Imperial City by his former tutor, Reginald Fleming Johnston. He sounds English. Was he English? He's Scottish. Uh -huh. uh, and his own autobiography, written with a ghostwriter, that was written after the Chinese Revolution and after Puyi had served his time in a re-education center. So again, grain of salt. Okay. Also, it's worth pointing out that a major source for many articles and papers on his life was a book called The Last Emperor by Edward Bear. Said book contains an awful lot of anecdotes that aren't really supported anywhere else, and many may be outright fabrications. Aww. As such, that book was not used as a source for this episode. And uh, as with my last episode, I'm going to apologize in advance for my attempts at pronunciation throughout the story. Okay. So the Qing Dynasty is a fascinating Chinese dynasty. Instead of being formed by the standard Han, Ming, or other groups that have been batting around the dynasties, which is an incredible oversimplification, but you know what I mean, uh, this dynasty was formed by the Manchu people, first as the Jin Dynasty in 1616, and then giving way to the Qing in 1636. Mm -hmm. Its power was largely unchallenged up until 1795, incorporating a period of expansion, cultural success, and prosperity. Okay. However, 
The 1800s would be a nasty time for the Tsing, with the repeated body blows of the Opium Wars, allowing Eurocentric colonial powers to get their hooks into the country, followed by the Taiping Rebellion and the Dungan Revolt, further weakening the country, and then the Sino-Japanese War of 1895, ending in a brutal defeat for China. Mm-hmm. There was an attempt to enact reforms and modernize the country in the wake of a hundred years of defeat, but those efforts were actively sabotaged by the ruling Dowager Empress and the conservative faction of the imperial government. So the direct result of which was the Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, otherwise known as the Boxers, to attack and murder foreigners in China, which gave the Western colonial powers the excuse to invade in the so-called Boxer Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And again, China attempted to modernize to better respond to these modern challenges. And again, the conservatives of the imperial court crippled any attempt to reform the imperial state. Yikes. So... The 1911 revolution, led in part by Sun Yat-sen, forced the abdication of the emperor and established the Republic of China. It was a short revolution that was more of a bunch of revolts all over China gathered in one banner in the end. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of the Qing dynasty and the dynastic system of China that had ruled for the last 4,000 years. They had a good run. Had a very good run. Although, in the view of Qin Yongming, the leader of China's democracy movement and human rights advocate who has spent much of his adult life bouncing in and out of uh, re-education camps and prisons for campaigning for freedom of speech, religion, association, and basic human rights, all that was really accomplished was replacing an imperial dictator with a dictator of imperial power, referring to Mao Zedong as worse than an emperor. Hmm. That's a direct quote. So when the 1911 revolution forced his abdication, the emperor was six years old. And this was in what year? 1911. Okay. He had been chosen as the next emperor after his childless half-uncle had died in 1908. Palace officials had come to his home to take him to the Forbidden City. The confused and frightened two-year-old screamed and cried as this parade of well-dressed strangers took him from his family. Although his father was appointed as regent for him, he would not see his mother again until he was 13 years old. Oh, dang. Yeah. Poor little guy. Uh, His one connection to his family, considering that his father was not allowed to actually socialize with him, Mm -hmm. was his nursemaid, Wang Lianxu. She tried to give him a sense of normalcy, but she too would be forced away from him by palace politics when he was eight years old. Mm -hmm. And so Puyi grew up alone, revered, and with his every whim indulged. Uh By all accounts, including his own, his reaction to this uprooting was to develop a form of cruelty often seen in those without anyone capable of telling them no. Uh, He enjoyed having his eunuch advisors flogged. Mm. He had been given a pellet gun as a toy and would fire it at anyone he liked. One horrifying incident occurred when one of his eunuchs performed a puppet show that he really enjoyed. His idea of further entertainment from the eunuch was to force the man to eat a cake baked with iron filings in it. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Just to, quote, see what he looks like when he eats it, end quote. Thankfully, uh, Wang was able to dissuade him, but it serves as as an example of his childhood sadism. Hmm. Now, he was educated in the Confucian model, 
uh, which means he was educated with the four books and five classics of classic Chinese philosophy and literature. The closest analog I can think of is if a child is educated entirely from a combination of the Old Testament, Arthurian legends, and books on Greek philosophy. I mean, that's a great combo right there. It's an interesting combo. It's certainly an education, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not one that incorporates much in the way of modern thinking. For example, he learned no science and no mathematics, and his grasp of geography was so limited that it was difficult for people to explain to him where the cities of China were outside of Peking, let alone the concept of countries that were not China. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, He also grew up with no sense of self-care. His eunuchs were ever present to open doors for him, dress and wash him, and by most accounts even wipe for him after he'd gone to the bathroom. Uh, This this is a life of extreme pampering, yes, but also one of no privacy and no sense of self-reliance, which was a flaw that would follow him around for the rest of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. So, when the 1911 revolution came around, one of the main parts of the peace treaty was the forced abdication of the six-year-old emperor. Now, he wasn't going to, like, abdicate and be executed. He was going to be allowed to live in the imperial living area of the Forbidden City and retain his imperial title and the protocols that went with it. But governing power was turned over to former imperial general Yuan Shikai in the role of prime minister. Okay. Now, Yuan actually wanted to restore the monarchy with himself as emperor. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but he failed to gather the political support he needed, and his attempt ended in humiliation and death by uremia shortly thereafter. Don't tell me uh, what that is. That sounds horrible. For those of you who don't know what uremia oh, is, man. it's super gross. It's when uh, urea is carried in the bloodstream. So instead of being uh, removed from the body through urine waste... Uh, it gets into your blood and it slowly, slowly and painfully kills you. It's real bad. Gross. So, unfortunately, the Republic of China was not super successful in terms of being a governing organization. And China started to devolve into civil warfare and local warlords. Mm -hmm. Now, the nominal government of the Republic of China was pretty much operating under the assumption that the monarchy was eventually going to be restored. And to that end... They arranged for the man who would influence Puyi most during his formative teenage years. Sir Reginald Johnston from Edinburgh, Scotland, came to be Puyi's personal tutor in 1916. Now, how does a Scottish dude end up in China? Well, he was a diplomat. He was a, he was a diplomat for Britain. Okay. And they wanted to send somebody there who would have some influence on him. And since he was somebody who could teach, he was the guy they picked. Okay. He taught Puyi English and world history. Now, this Eurocentric tutelage was eye-opening for Puyi, having had little to no understanding of other cultures before. Mm -hmm. And Johnston's educational model would result in Puyi becoming more self-sufficient and embracing modern technologies, particularly cinema, uh, as well as the beginnings of a sense of empathy. However... Johnston was also a staunch monarchist, believing that a benevolent dictatorial state led by a reasonable imperial figure was preferable to a constitutional democracy. Huh. That's not very Scottish of him. I I get the feeling reading about the guy that he was very disillusioned with how the monarchy was operating in Britain in the early 1900s and how the civilian government was operating. So, yeah. 
Okay. Uh, so in, in 1922, at the age of 16, Puyi was told he needed to marry somebody. Now, in the past, what was done was uh, the, the eligible girls would be paraded before the emperor and he would choose however many of them he wanted to, to marry. Uh they they sort of uh, they sort of tendered this one for him. Uh, he was just given photographs of a number of aristocratic teenage girls to choose from. And he swiped left. He swiped on a on a bunch of them, but he did pick one. He picked a a girl named Wen Zhui, but she was deemed to not be classy enough. Uh, she was of Manchu descent. And the uh, the people in charge of the palace didn't think she was a good fit for an empress. Okay. Uh, but he was allowed to take her on as a concubine. Okay. And he instead settled on marrying a girl named Wan Rong. Now, none of the three of them would meet until the actual wedding. Sure. You know, which I guess is a way to do things. No, they do that on Tinder, too. You don't meet until you actually <laughs> make a permanent commitment. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. And and this this to me is a very humanizing moment. Uh, so this this sheltered and surrounded only by eunuchs teenage boy mm-hmm. uh, wound up running away after the ceremony uh, when he was led to the consummation room, uh-huh. and he basically got freaked out and ran home. Yeah, and you know what? I get it, man. I, there, there's some speculation that Puyi may have been gay, but it's just as likely that a teenage boy who was not allowed to be in any way educated regarding human sexuality just wasn't ready for this. And he's how old when this happens? Sixteen. Yeah, that's that's really young. And he's well, and he's also not had any exposure to the only women in his life are the former concubines of the previous emperor, who are all essentially old ladies who hate him. So yeah. he hasn't really had any like positive female presence, with the exception of his like his nursemaid, who had to who was you know tossed out on her rear at when he was eight. So, but he does have great. the wedding. But he does have the wedding. He is okay. married to both of them at this point. Okay. Wan Rong is his primary wife, and Wen Shui is his secondary, uh, his concubine. Got it. So, despite the awkwardness of their wedding and wedding night, uh, by all accounts, Puyi and Wan Rong became good friends, nice. uh, often riding their bicycles together. Oh, uh, which is which is a very teenagery thing to do. That's right? adorable. I love it. Now, the relationship with Wen Jui was much more complicated because even though Puyi liked her, Wen Rong saw her as a rival and treated her really, really badly, mm-hmm. which then, of course, led to Puyi treating her really, really badly. And eventually, Wen Jui would flee and file for divorce. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Changing of the time. Yeah. And lived out the rest of her life living in abject poverty and working as a teacher and then for a cleaning service until her death. Interesting. Yeah, not not the happy ending I was hoping for for her. But she was granted a divorce. That's really interesting. She was granted a divorce. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, so Wan Rong and Puyi did not live together. Mm-hmm. And by most accounts, she was more fair with her servants and eunuchs than he was. Uh, she was quick to fire them if they displeased her, but she also ensured that they were well-fed and had their basic needs seen to, which was a big step up in the Imperial Palace. Sure. As part of Puyi's embracing of Western ways, Wan Rong taught him how to eat with a knife and fork. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, however, she also developed a habit for smoking. Uh, first cigarettes, but eventually opium. Mm-hmm. And that's not great. So life continued much the same for the young in-name-only emperor and empress. Again, outside of the Forbidden City, China had descended into another warlord period with various factions warring to attempt to establish a government, none or little of which was known by Puyi. Oh, interesting. So he really was just a decorative object. He was, and he was completely sheltered um, from all this stuff going on until 1924. When uh, one of the warlords, Fen Yuzhuang, uh, his faction took Peking mm-hmm. and issued an edict that stated that Puyi's imperial title and privilege were no more mm-hmm. and gave him three hours to vacate the city. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a rude awakening. Yep. Uh, so he gathered up what, uh, as much wealth as he could grab and forced his servants to grab and he fled to the house of his father. And then, at Reginald Johnston's urging, sought out allies among the Japanese military forces. So, this is not great. Hmm. There's a lot of speculation of why Johnston pushed Puyi towards the Japanese instead of towards, you know, the British, which you would think he would have done. Um, but, uh, at any rate, this this association with the Japanese would be real bad, because you got to remember that... Japan is in its we're out to conquer the world phase right now, and mm. it's bad. Um, in 1925, Puyi and Wanrong, as well as the courtiers that stayed with them, fled to Japanese-controlled Tianjin. While in Tianjin, Puyi spent most of his time meeting with various warlords to try to get himself reinstalled as emperor. He had enough money to bankroll anybody, mm-hmm. but... They knew that, so they just simply made promises, took his cash, and did nothing. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, his relationship with Wanrong, under this very understandable strain, uh, fell apart as she took to smoking more opium, and it was at this time that Wanjui left and got the divorce she wanted. Okay. In 1931, the Japanese began their campaign to conquer China in earnest. They began in Manchuria. And in an effort to give their invasion an air of legitimacy, they sent an envoy to Puyi, offering to install him as the head of state in Manchuria. Mm -hmm. Puyi decided to uh, go with this. Now, his wife, Wanrong, immediately denounced this as treason. uh, But Puyi was snuck out of Tianjin in the trunk of a car and then smuggled onto a boat and taken to Japanese-controlled Manchuria, the currently seated Chinese government issued a warrant for his arrest on the charge of treason. Right. Uh, Yeah, because it is. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that is treason. It is. In the encyclopedia next to the entry for treason. Okay, gotcha. That would be how you would define that, yes. So Wanrong, as I said, she stayed behind for six weeks denouncing her husband's choice, But loyalty to tradition eventually won out, Hmm. and she followed him to Manchuria. The Japanese formed the puppet state of Manchuko, with Puyi as its head of state, referred to as chief executive, with the honorific of Your Excellency in place of Imperial Majesty. Uh, He wasn't overly fond of that, but he was sold on the idea that this was the first step towards a newly unified and re-imperialized China. He was kind of skipping over the thing that it would all be under Japanese control. Well, details. You know. Mm 
But I get the feeling like all the reading that I did on him, it, it really felt like he was like the imperial life was the only constant he understood. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to me that he would spend all this time trying to get back to it. Interesting. But it's still he's he makes a lot of choices that like you just kind of wish somebody had been able to say, don't do that, bud. It's bad. Um, so Japanese propaganda declared the state of Manchuko to be a triumph of pan-Asianism, a state made of Japanese, Chinese, Mongolian, Manchurian, and Korean people. Sure. Uh, the reality was that it was a police state under occupation by a brutal military dictatorship. Right. The claim that Puyi's reign was to save the people from the lawlessness of the warlords of China was undercut, to say the least, by the horrific crime rate and the occupation force. Hmm. Nevertheless, in 1934, he was proclaimed to be Emperor of Manchuko. And I kind of feel for Puyi here, because from what I was reading, it really seems like he, he was desperate enough to be imperial again, Mm -hmm. but he also kind of understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So he had the difficult balancing act of saying all that the Japanese wanted him to say in public while trying to assert some independence in private. Okay. So the problem with this was that he was the rubber stamp for their policies. He would, he would sign whatever laws they placed in front of him. And he added that air of legitimacy to their occupation that they wanted. Mm -hmm. But, but I get the feeling he knew that the promise of Manchuko was a lie and it was nothing more than Japanese colonialism. Hmm. Also, his life was constantly under threat and he survived multiple assassination attempts. One, one occasion he was stabbed in the stomach by an advisor. Oh, geez. Uh, but he's okay. still, yeah. And he was technically living in a palace again, but this was like a really, really run down kind of building. And the military government building was a heck of a lot nicer than this one. Mm-hmm. It was also in a dangerous part of town where it would literally be like a life or death situation if he left at night. Interesting. Okay. So he took out his frustrations and helplessness on the staff, falling back on old habits and ordering brutal beatings of the servants. And just to make it even worse... Most of those servants were war orphans. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. not a great look. It was bad. Um, the second Sino-Japanese War broke out, and he dutifully repeated the Japanese propaganda. Mm-hmm. And when Japan declared war on the United States and Britain, Manchuko followed suit, uh, which did nothing because it wasn't a recognized country. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. He was greatly disturbed by the Second World War because uh, despite the Japanese propaganda machine, accounts of what was really going on did start to break through to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And he really noticed that the Japanese propaganda, as opposed to what was actually going on, when the Japanese started to lose, Mm. Um, when they started to suffer extreme losses and all of the, you know, official newspapers were talking about the heroic sacrifices, he started to understand that they were not going to win this war. And the final thing really came in 1945 when the Soviet Union declared war on Japan. And I'm not sure how good my geography is, but I'm pretty sure China's right next to Russia. Yeah, um, they're in the same <laughs> part of the globe, yeah. aren't they? 
Yeah. Uh, they just walked across the border and invaded Manchuko. Yeah. So the army that was stationed in Manchuko was called the Kwantung Army. And they were supposed to be like the occupying force of all of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were caught completely unprepared and were easily defeated. Um, I mean, it was a matter of like the Soviets rolled in in tanks and the Kwantung people were trying to like fire back with pistols. Oh, it was okay. a bad look. Puyi was ordered to flee, and on the train out of the city, he learned of the atomic bomb and the surrender of Japan. Mm-hmm. So the next day, he does the right thing, uh, which which I this is the thing about him. Like, his character keeps flip-flopping to me. Like, on the one hand, he's this absolutely terrifying, horrible person who's beating children. And on the other hand, literally the day after the surrender, of he abdicates his emperorship and declares that Manchuko is, was, and always will be part of China. Hmm. Now, that immediately puts his life in danger because, remember, he's fleeing the city along with a bunch of Japanese colonists, right. a bunch of Japanese military people, um, so the formerly Imperial Party decide that the safest thing to do is to split up and head to separate airfields. Um, Puyi takes one party that are going to try to flee to Japan, mm-hmm. and one Rong is going to take a party and try to flee to Korea. Are they going to meet up? Or are they just, like, they're, scattering? I, I think they're just running for their lives at this point. Okay, that makes sense. Both parties are captured. Sure. Uh, Puyi gets caught by the Soviets at the airfield... Uh, before he can get anywhere near a plane. Mm -hmm. And Wen Rong gets captured by the communist Chinese, uh, Mm. who had been fighting a guerrilla campaign the entire time, and now we're, like, starting to get military support from uh, especially the Soviet Union, and we're starting to uh, emerge as the force that would then eventually bring Mao Zedong to power and rule China. Um, Needless to say... Uh, things did not go well for one wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things that they did was put her on display in a public prison. Oh, no. That's yeah. not a good start. Now, keep in mind, she is addicted to opium. Mm-hmm. And going cold turkey from opium... Pretty painful, is right? Not, it's extraordinarily painful, and it's also exceedingly dangerous mm-hmm. uh, to do that without some medical supervision. Uh, she was unable to eat, sleep, or defecate. Dang. And she spent most of her time rolling around on the floor of her prison cell, screaming incoherently, and then delusionally ordering her servants to feed her and bathe her, uh, often mistaking the people coming to see her in her public prison as her servants, uh, most of which would get a good chuckle out of that. That is incredibly sad. The... End of it comes when uh, the prison commander decided that feeding her was a waste of food, uh, and she was left to die alone. Her body was discovered on June 20th of 1946. Dang. That is yeah. pretty horrible. It's a, it, her story struck me as very, very sad. She's basically plucked out of this admittedly aristocratic life and then thrown into this incredibly like loveless and, and even like lacking in fondness mm-hmm. marriage. Once they were no longer teenagers and he was no longer the emperor, basically. Mm-hmm. And she just dove headfirst into opium and stayed there. Hmm. And that is an awful, awful way f- uh, to go. Puyi, on the other hand, was taken to Siberia. Uh-oh. Nothing good happens yeah. if you're taken I mean, to Siberia. 
the funny thing is, that's what I was thinking, mm-hmm. but it kind of saved his life. Okay. <laughs> and I'll explain. The Soviet government refused to extradite him back to China. Mm-hmm. And considering what a bloody mess was going on in China at the time, that definitely kept him from being executed, considering that Chiang Kai-shek himself had publicly stated that he wanted to see Puyi shot. Okay. Puyi went on to testify to Japanese war crimes and his own role in Manchukuo. He maintained that he had been a prisoner and a figurehead when confronted with uh, his old tutor, Reginald Johnston's account of things. Uh, He basically said that Johnston had made it up to... Uh, he had made up any willingness he had to go along with the Japanese out of his own, you know, sense of artistic license and that Puyi had only done what he had done to keep himself alive. Mm-hmm. Then when Mao Zedong came to power in 1949, Puyi was extradited back to China. And the reason for this, uh, this is actually kind of an interesting thing. So Puyi was considered extremely valuable to Mao. Mm-hmm. Because when the Chinese communist leaders took over, what they their main method of getting and staying in power was to remythologize China. Okay, and it was an incredibly powerful thing to have Puyi, the last emperor, be the symbol of everything that was wrong with Chinese society before the glory of Mao took over. Right. Sure. And so and so they didn't want to have him executed. They wanted they didn't want to make an example out of him other than an example of reeducation. Because if they could reeducate even the emperor, mm-hmm. then obviously they would you know, more more glory to them, right? That's interesting. Okay. It, it's a really interesting political idea, mm. um, and it definitely saved Puyi's life. It would have been much more in line for people to just have executed him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've arrived at a very interesting point in uh, <laughs> global yeah. politics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so he was imprisoned in the Fushun War Criminals Prison. I mean, you gotta... Uh, <laughs> Got to yeah. put him somewhere so that everyone Got to put him somewhere. Look, right? You can't just you can't just give him an apartment. Okay. Um <laughs> and what's interesting is that this is the first time that Puyi's uh newfound humility starts to show up. Mm-hmm. So, um he was treated with kindness by the Chinese guards because he basically fully expected to be executed. Sure. And they were like, "No, nah, man, this is this is your new life." Prison. Um, and he began to talk with the informal you mm-hmm. instead of the formal you. Oh, interesting. Which coming from, I mean, which was something that an emperor never, ever, ever, ever would have done. Mm-hmm. So this is his first like moment of kind of being, you know, humble. Um, so he would spend 10 years at Fushun. And the problem with Fushun is that most of the people imprisoned there were officers and officials from the Japanese army, the Manchuko puppet state. And here's the guy that not only 
you know, is not a physically imposing specimen. He's he's short. He has to wear glasses because he's very nearsighted, uh, and he's been pampered his whole life. So there is not an ounce of muscle on the on the poor dude. Mm-hmm. Although he was very skinny, it was is very interesting physically. But he's not a very strong person. Sure. And the political cachet of humiliating the former emperor uh, was a big thing in the prison walls. Uh, he may have indeed been beaten to death had the warden of the prison gone out of his way to protect him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was so isolated that he didn't learn um, what had happened to Wan Rong until five years after her death. Dang. Yeah. That's pretty bad. He had to learn how to tie his shoelaces. Mm, that's a tough one. Because he'd never had to do that before. Yeah. Uh, he had to learn how to brush his teeth. Because he'd never had to do that before. He participated in um, discussion groups, I think is the best way uh, of putting it, which was part of the re-education process where people would talk about their lives before they had been imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the one of the interesting conversations that comes out of his book, um, so again, grain of salt, but it, 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 because this this may well have been written as propaganda, but it's also an interesting thing. Uh, he he had stated in one of these discussion groups that it had been impossible to resist the Japanese. There was nothing he could have done. And somebody pointed out to him that there were Chinese people who were commoners who had resisted and been tortured to death. And how is it that the ordinary people resisted while he had done nothing? Mm. So that's that was a big moment. Um, he uh, attended a lot of talks about the exploitation of Manchuko, mm-hmm. and um, he learned of how officers had ordered mass executions, had uh, rounded up people for enslaved labor, and he was taken out to Pinfang, where Unit Seven Thirty One, the chemical and biological warfare unit of the Japanese army had been conducting their experiments on people. Yikes. Okay. And this is the real, this was the real thing for him was that all of these atrocities that they had done were carried out in his name because he was the figurehead. That's pretty horrible. Yeah. It's very horrible. In fact, he, he was put on a suicide watch Mm -hmm. because Learning this stuff was such a shock to his system that they're afraid he would kill himself before he could be put on display as, you know, a great new. Uh, was new there thing. any kind of trial at this point? Oh, no. No. He was no. just in prison no, for not, life. Okay. Not in, not in Mao's China, no. Um, <laughs> so he met a lot of common people who would tell him of like the horrors that they'd gone through under Japanese occupation. Mm-hmm. And he took to like apologizing to them and asking for their forgiveness. And a lot of times people kind of, this is a real like faith in humanity thing. Like a lot of times people were like, look, it wasn't your fault. And a lot of times people, oh God, there's this one story of this woman who had uh, essentially watched the people from her village get wiped out in a mass execution and she forgave Puyi for his, like, part in that government. Mm-hmm. He expressed himself through art. He, un- he took to writing poetry. And he took to understanding that uh, there, were, there were 
more interesting things in the world than what he had been brought up with. And in 1959, uh, Mao himself gave him special permission to move to Peking and live in a, uh, essentially an apartment. So he's out of prison or he's still in prison, but like on a release program? it's kind of it's kind of hard to to quantify. He's still definitely not a completely free man, right. but he's not living in the prison anymore. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he got a job as a street sweeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got lost on his first day of work. Yeah, he did. Because <laughs> he didn't know his way around the city. Yep. And this is all this is all like secondhand, thirdhand kind of stories, but I, I, I kind of hope that it's true. He came to really, really regret the uh, acts of his youth as emperor, particularly the floggings. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, he made it a goal of his to locate all of the eunuchs that he could find that were still alive and still around and apologize to them in person. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of big. Did he actually do that? As far as I can tell, he at least did it with a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't find definitive sources, and some of them come from that book. He married again in 1962. He married a woman named Li Shujian, uh, who was a hospital nurse. Huh. Well, that's a good choice. Nurses it's are a good choice. Nice. Nurses are great. And he took to writing. He wrote for the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote for their literary, literary department from about 1964 until his death. Uh, his wife stated in a 1995 interview that she found him to be an honest man, a man who desperately needed love and could give as much love as he could. Interesting. Uh, apparently, when his wife caught a, a very mild flu, which she knew was a mild flu because she was a nurse. That's right. That's why you uh, want a nurse. That's why you want a nurse. Uh, he was so concerned for her that he sat by her bedside until dawn in case she needed anything. Wow. And, like, couldn't sleep. So, um, He was also very clumsy, apparently, mm-hmm. well. uh, because he never had to tend to anything yeah i was gonna say and you have to learn to tie your own shoes as an adult that exactly comes along it's with, uh, some it, gross motor deficiencies it's tough uh and um she quoted him as saying uh with regard to his remorse for who he had been in the past mm-hmm. quote yesterday's puyi is the enemy of today's puyi i mean we should all feel like that Right? You right? want to grow. You don't want to be the same person you were in high school. You don't want to go the other way 10 either. Years ago. You really don't. Uh, no, I, I feel like the the worst thing that happens to people is when they have this idea of the person they're supposed to be mm-hmm. and they never figure out who they actually are. You know what I mean? Like, like the guy who's like, well, I have to do that because that's what a real man does. It's like, buddy, you get to define that. Anyway. Um... In the 1960s, thanks to Premier Zhao Anlai and, of course, with the endorsement of Mao Zedong, Puyi wrote his autobiography, which uh, is a very complicated Chinese phrase, but it roughly translates in English to from emperor to citizen. Interesting. 
Uh, he wrote that with a, a ghostwriter named Lee Wenda. Uh, and Lee had originally planned to use the uh, the stuff that he had written before, but then he took uh, he took a look at what uh, Puyi had said in his testimony at the war crimes tribunal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really gave him an insight into who Puyi was now. And so they sat together uh, for over a year writing this book. Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was very interesting. Again, From Emperor to Citizen is uh, not necessarily the truth. I mean, no autobiography or memoir no aut- is necessarily is. 100% factual. But what's most interesting about it is that he is capable of being critical mm-hmm. of both himself, Imperial China, and for a little bit, uh, for for probably as much as he was allowed to, uh, the New People's Republic of China. Mm. And it was still published. Interesting. And it translated into many languages and sold very well. What in particular um, was he critical about? Uh, very, very, very minor things. Yeah, I would like, hope so. Uh, during during the Great Leap Forward, he noticed that some people perhaps didn't have enough food. Okay, <laughs> that certainly sets a tone. As opposed to it? mass starvation happening everywhere. I mean, I get the feeling Puyi knew how to handle the politics of people because it's what made his you know it, it's what he had to do to save his own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and from then on out, he he would. Uh, Whenever he talked to the press, he was always very careful to praise uh, the life in in the People's Repu- Republic of China. Uh, talk about how, you know, uh, how great things were under Mao Zedong's rule and all the other great stuff uh, that was going on at the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, his, uh, his ghostwriter, Li Wenda, uh, would talk about how Puyi still didn't quite have the hang of you know, stuff like flushing the toilet and ter- mm-hmm. closing doors behind him. And, you know, it was very disorderly. Mm. Uh, but he was gen- genuinely a very sweet man who tried to be modest and humble. That's uh, interesting. One of, the, one of the anecdotes about him was that he apparently um, <laughs> would insist on always being the last person to board a bus. Mm-hmm letting everyone else get on the bus before him. And whenever he would eat at a restaurant, he would tell whoever was serving them, you should not be serving me, I should be serving you. Hmm. Um, one one story which may be completely made up or may have happened uh, was that uh, he was riding his bicycle one day and accidentally knocked down an elderly lady. Uh, he ensured she got the best care in a hospital and brought her flowers every day until she was out of the hospital. Hmm. Now, uh, the Red Guard did not really like Puyi, uh, as you can probably imagine. And uh, he had to be placed under a protection detail from the local public security bureau. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was not allowed any of his personal property because, of course, this was communist China. Right. Uh, He was not allowed to have any of his imperial trappings. Same reason. But... uh, as opposed to other people who had been in a similar, though not as high-ranking position, who had been either lined up against the wall and shot, or at the very least publicly humiliated, uh, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the Red Guards d- 
didn't like the fact that uh, his book had been translated into English and French. Mm. Uh, they were very upset about that. Lots of people um, reading in English and French. Yeah, well, we don't want that. Um, and in fact, his ghostwriter uh, was uh, arrested and spent seven years in solitary confinement. Oh, jeez. Uh, for yeah. writing this book? Yes. Ooh, that seems Again, harsh. Again, that's, that's not a fact that I could independently verify. It's mentioned in one source, um, but it, it wouldn't be super surprising. Um, Puyi's health was not great. Um, throughout most of the 1960s, he had repeated trouble with uh, his kidneys. It was eventually diagnosed as kidney cancer. Uh, he had also developed heart disease. And on October 17th of 1967, uh, he died. And how old was he? He was 61 years old. That is astonishing. Isn't it? Hmm. In accordance with the laws at the time, he was cremated. At first, his ashes were to be placed in the Baobashan Revolutionary Cemetery, mm-hmm. which is where uh, party and state dignitaries would be would be buried. Um, however, his ashes were transferred by his widow, Li Xuxian, to a commercial cemetery in return for her making a donation to the party. That cemetery is near to the Tsing tombs, which are southwest of Peking, where four of the nine Tsing emperors before him are interred. So it was kind of a nice a nice gesture. Hmm. Uh, the last thing that I do want to say about him is that there, <laughs> uh, he is, is such an interesting public figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of this interest in him has to do with the, with the 1987 film The Last Emperor. Right. Uh, the Last Emperor is a very interesting movie. Um, it's, it's very neat. Uh, it is not super factual. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen and it. Have you? I have seen it. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it does a great job of portraying him very sympathetically. Mm-hmm. It, however, skips over a lot of, a lot of things that, make him a more interesting person. Um, Mm. Its own screenwriter had a lot of trouble because the Chinese government was, had the ability to step in and, uh, you know, make changes if they wanted to. So again, uh, it's, it's a good film. It's a very good film. Uh, On Rotten Tomatoes, it is 87% fresh. Whoa. Okay. But uh, you don't want to, um, you don't want to watch it as a historical docudrama. Okay. It is it is a film that is uh, not based on as much fact as it's it's a neat film. Okay. And that's it. That is the story of the crazy, complicated, and very interesting life of someone who became an emperor at way too young, and kind of spent the the last part of his life trying to make up for it, I guess. Uh, that is the story of Puyi, the last emperor of China. That is a very long and very complicated life. Yeah, uh, a lot longer than it probably would have been if 
various and other things had happened along the way. I, I mean, know. From the second he was forced to abdicate, he, he was a candidate for just like, you know, being taken out somewhere and shot. Right. So the fact that he lived, you know, essentially a, a full life is nothing short of politically amazing mm. because he had to know how to handle all these people who wanted him dead and or wanted to just profit for themselves off of him. And that's an incredible tightrope for anybody to walk, let alone somebody who's told, you know, through most of their formative years, you have the mandate of heaven. You are infallible and perfect in every way. I, I just I can't even fathom coming back from something like that. So he had no children. Uh, he did not. Uh, and again, there's that question of whether or not he was heterosexual. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I feel like it It, it kind of doesn't really matter. I, I feel like his relationship with both uh, Wen Rong and Wen Jui were so bad that children weren't really going to be in the picture anyway. Yeah. Uh, and of course, by the time he married uh, his last wife, the nurse, uh, they were both... You know, not elderly, but past yeah. the time when you'd want to have a newborn running around. Right. So, no, he never had any kids of his own. So if you had to look at that life and pick out the point where it was a complete disaster, where would you place that? Manchuko. Definitely. Manchuko. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, to serve as the figurehead against your own country for that country's occupying force while knowing if you say the wrong thing, the occupiers are going to have you killed. Mm -hmm. If you try to go back to your own country, they're going to have you killed. I mean, I, that was an absolute... I mean, Manchuko itself is a horrifying story mm -hmm. of just one long, continuous war crime. Yeah. But him being the figurehead for it is terrifying. Because at any point, if he had shown any semblance of independence against the Japanese, they simply would have killed him. Like, it wasn't a very hard metric for them. Mm -hmm. It's like, as soon as, the second you stop being useful, you're dead. That's a lot to get through. Thank you for bearing with me on that one. Here at Relative Disasters, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our story today, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, and you know you do, why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. A big thank you to our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Paul. Paul. Our chief imperial stenographer. Nice. <laughs> and Lauren. Lauren. Our chief of Imperial Bicycle Management. Nice. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And uh, now we're done with uh, our impromptu Empire Month. So please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Next week, we're going to talk about the wreck of the Sultana, the deadliest shipwreck in American waters ever. I've never heard of this. That no, sounds No, you haven't, and there's a reason we're going to get into it. <laughs> Nobody survived. Uh, well, that sounds incredible, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.